Hello, I'm Mark Rossman. I'm the director of the House on Sorority Row, and you're listening to Scream 101. Hello and welcome to Scream 101. I'm Brennan Klein. And I'm Shannon Chalakian. And what you just heard is director Mark Rossman of the House on Sorority Row. I mean, he just told you that, but we're so excited. We're so excited because this is our first special interview episode. And it is going to go exactly like this. Very shortly, we're going to start on our main programming, which is Mark Rossman himself answering a plethora of questions that we came up with. However, right now, we are going to um, do our normal segment. Just to ease you guys into things before we do a completely unfamiliar show, the entire interview show, because we're not doing any of our normal segments, we're going to ease you guys in with our 10 words or less reviews. So, Shannon, would you like to start? Certainly. So, I admittedly have still not really watched many movies, because it's been so busy since I got back from working with 8th um, grade girls at a math and science camp. <laughs> But I did happen to see um, Wet Hot American Summer. I think I watched it twice, actually, just because um, I had to show it to my sister and then again to my dad. And my 10-word review is, it's really awkward to watch a gay sex scene with your father. Doesn't have to be. (laughs) All right. Um, I watched four movies, and I'm only counting the horror movies that I watched because I watched, like, 20 movies this week. The Return of the Living Dead. First half is unimpeachable comedy. Second half needs more brains. Night of the Creeps. I love college movies, especially with flamethrowers and zombie worms. Road Games. National Lampoon's Duel. Silly yet tremendous. More Jamie Lee, please. Slumber Party Massacre 3. Why am I enjoying this so much? Re-examine life choices. There. Done. Like 20 seconds. I got this. That was pretty good, actually. Thank you. I worked very hard. All right, so now... Without further ado, we will um, welcome our special guest, Mark Rossman. Yeah, see you on the other side, guys. Yeah, you, you guys are going to enjoy this as much as we did it recording, which is significant. Significant. All right, and let's give a great big Scream 101 welcome <laughs> to Mark Rossman, the director of The House on Sorority Row. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. You're very welcome. And let's jump straight on into our first question. We're going to start by talking about The House on Sorority Row. Uh, when writing the script, did you watch any contemporary slasher films of the time to try to understand the genre or the trend? I, I think I watched every single slasher movie. Um, I was not a huge fan of slasher movies. My favorite genre then was um, thrillers, suspense I loved um, Hitchcock movies, Twilight Zone episodes, John Frankenheimer as a director, um, Kubrick. But when the horror slasher genre kind of started in that cycle, which was Halloween really, was the first one of that cycle, I loved the filmmaking of it um, a lot, uh, the way it looked, and was sort of thought that for me to break into directing if I just sort of made a slasher movie but gave it kind of a thriller feel to it that that way I could kind of satisfy both I'd be happy with it and um, I could actually sell it and get it made so I did watch you know all the terror trains and prom nights and Friday the 13th and and pretty much all of those um, at that time yeah um, but as you, I probably there's more influences in Alison Sorority Row from older films uh, like Diabolique mm-hmm. and, you know, some Hitchcock movies. And there's little pieces here and there of a bunch of things. Fantastic. In the film, you cameo as a piano player. And <laughs> also, according to IMDb, I don't know if this is true because IMDb isn't always true. <laughs> But you're credited with writing the music and lyrics to Be a Star in your film Life Size. I don't know uh, if that's true. Is that true? That's half true. I wrote the lyrics. Okay. Well, uh, do you have a musical background at all? 
I just as a hobby. Okay. You know, I've played guitar since I was a kid. Um, I've uh, I, I've taken piano lessons on and off as an adult. Okay. And I'm currently taking piano lessons and um, always loved music. Um, and so doing uh, the score of a movie has always been really um, a, a fun part, even though I've never scored up my movies, but working with a composer has been always a really fun part. And uh, I think we needed uh, a piano. I think we had a piano sitting there, and it was <laughs> all the idea was like the end of the frat party. And um, I had composed this one little song, and so I just played that. Great. And I have to admit, that was a little bit of a leading question, because I really love the band Four Out of Five Doctors <laughs> that appears in the film. Okay. Uh, I I think all the people want to know, how did they get involved in the film? Were you involved in that process yeah, at all? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, uh, we Obviously, we needed a band for the, the prom party, um, uh, the frat sorority party. And we were shooting outside of Washington, D.C., um, in Pikesville, Maryland. Um, and... One of the guys that really brought me to the company in Washington that was making that kind of made the movie, his sister was I think dating a guy from Four Out of Five Doctors, uh, either dating or knew of them, and they were a local Washington D.C. club band, and I listened. They had about two albums I think at the time, and I listened to a couple of their cuts. I said these guys are great, and they were they were perfect, and we made a deal with them. Great. The classic rock story. <laughs> um, so what character in the script did you connect with the most? Uh, well, um, Kate, uh, you know, the, the main, the lead, you know, sort of a conflicted person about, you know, what's her future going to be like and a little bit of tension with her mother and her parents and sort of the good girl who's, you know, kind of wondering what her future is going to be like. So that was sort of my I think connection into the movie. Yeah, I could have said the bad girl, but uh. <laughs> everyone should know Mark Rosman is the bad girl. <laughs> I think we all have a little bit of the bad girl. <laughs> yeah, true. that's true. All right. So, what was it like filming your very first kill scene? Is it awkward to ask someone to die for you? Is that an uncomfortable moment? Like a first kiss? Like, do you make do you crack jokes? Is it strange a little bit? I don't think so. No, I mean, I think I I think they all the actresses know what they're signing up for. They know what the movie is. Some are a little better at the screaming <laughs> part of it, but I think they all kind of get into it. And I don't think anybody had any issues with with doing any of those scenes. Yeah, I think it sort of came naturally to them. <sighs> Great. Uh, in your original ending, you wanted the heroine to die. Was that just out of an impulse to be different, or does that appeal to a darker side of your personality? <laughs> uh, you know, I think it was a combination of things. Um, I think part of it was my frustration with how all of these films end very similarly. It's, you know, one girl is left, and she's the hero. And it's like, why is that? Why can't the killer just kill finally that last girl? Um, so I, you know, I thought, why not play around with the convention, um, and to try and do something that was a little surprising, a little more interesting. And so we actually shot the scene and, uh, the distributor said, no, uh, that ain't going to work. And we want to set it up for a potential sequel or it's too down to have her die at the end. And so unfortunately it wasn't meant to be that this was going to be the film to break all the genre conventions and have her die but it was a cool ending i don't know if you know what the ending was i actually scripted i, I went we went into production with even another scripted ending but what we ended up shooting was um so after the clown eric killer tumbles to the ground at the end and his eyes pop open the final scene is really one shot. It's an overhead shot of the swimming pool, and you see the clown costume uh, um, body floating face down. 
and you see some police lights and ambulance lights kind of sweeping the surface of the water and the camera just pulls up and up and as we pull up a paramedic hops in the pool and they're already dragging the other bodies out and they take this body and they turn it over and it's Kate it's Catherine (laughs) and uh, they take her into an ambulance and it's a big high shot and that's the end of the film that's wonderful. Did that make it on any sort of special feature? No, or? in fact, I don't. I have not even been able to ever find the footage again. I think we packed it. It was in a rough cut. It, you know, this is the days of thirty-five millimeter, right? Mm-hmm. So, we it was in the rough cut. But then when we finally went to make the final prints of the film, that scene was cut out. So that negative is floating around somewhere in some vault, but I never never found it. The true mystery. Yeah. I do have a still of it, though. Oh. I have a color still, and it's in my scrapbook, and it's it might appear in some. There's been a bunch of, like, reissues of CDs and the DVDs and things like that, so. I'll have to send Nicolas Cage National Treasure to find it. <laughs> yeah. All right. You've expressed your frustration with the poster for the film, like the yes. kind of softcore romantic yeah. poster for the film which which we see right here in your office there it is I, personally i enjoy the purple color scheme yeah like, i like the purple okay but what would your ideal poster for it be if you had complete artistic well control? the one i pitched at the time was basically a hand coming out of the swimming pool mm-hmm. um it was sort of like a deliverance kind of deliverance had that poster sort of feel it would have incorporated the swimming pool for sure and some dead bodies um what i objected the most here was that i felt this was misleading i thought that the poster to me especially when it says um where does it say yeah nothing can prepare you for what happens when she fights back to, and then she looks like she's just been raped, molested. So it looked to me like a rape revenge movie. That this is a movie about, you know, some woman getting back at, you know, that's not what the movie is at all to me. And uh, so it just felt like people were going to go into the movie expecting one thing and getting something completely different. Um, that's what I really objected to it. But the distributor was so happy with this poster, they were like, oh, it's a. <laughs> beautiful can you believe it's great like it's got boobs yeah that's right what's wrong with it yeah well i read that in your senior year of college you worked on the uh, brian de palma film home movies is that Uh, correct that's correct yeah did you learn any lessons on that set that you took to the house on sorority row which was your first feature yeah i think i learned a lot uh, of things um yeah we were prepping during my the end of my senior year, and then we shot it in the summer so you were prepping this film while you were still in college yeah i would say the last couple months and then wow. we probably started we, we started having meetings probably in january february of and then we were shooting around july oh yeah. my goodness yeah so so directly from finals into the house yeah on basically Row. yeah yeah it was um very i mean it, i learned a ton i mean just you know though it had a great combination of having a veteran director who i really admired brian de palma um, mixed with a kind of a non-union crew and then students in a lot of the crew positions like myself. I mean, I was the first AD on the movie and, you know, I'd never done that before and had to kind of learn it on the fly. I had, by then I had made a bunch, bunch of short films and I had been an AD on short films but never on a feature. And, I, you know, I saw how Brian De Palma storyboarded everything, um, how he shot things, um, how he worked with the actors... I talked to him about kind of his theory of getting started, which was his theory was um, you got to just start. You, rather than just talk about, oh, I'm going to do this, I mean, this, you really have just got to plant, plant your flag in the ground and go, okay, I'm making this movie, let's start. Let's, you know, let's just pick a start date and let's shoot towards that. And I think that's been a really uh, great lesson about sort of activating you and taking a really positive um, approach. It sounds like you took that to heart. Yeah. Yeah, I sure did. 
All right. So we were just talking about it. The House and Story Row was your first feature out of film school and in in film school a little bit. So what was the most? Well, no, uh, that was Home Movies was in film school. That okay. Home Movies, were, which was the Brian De Palma movie. Right, right, but you were prepping, you said? I was prepping Home Movies. Oh, okay. And then went right into shooting Home Movies, right? Gotcha, excuse House me. House and Sorority Row was a couple years later. Okay. Um, so what was the most unexpected thing you discovered about being a director that you weren't prepared for when you started with House and Sorority Row? You know, I guess it's interesting because I had... I had directed some shorts. I had worked as a first AD on a friend of mine's shorts, and then on House and Soror—I mean, on uh, Home Movies. You know, I was the AD and involved, and from prep all the way through post, that really prepared me a lot. And I think, I think on that film, I I was experiencing for the first time the feature film thing. And one of the things that I was very aware of is how many questions you're asked per day. Uh, on home movies it was as the AD but you probably get a similar amount as the director and I found that for my first experience was really exhausting um, anytime we had a break I would just try and isolate myself like I you know just get away from everybody and try and focus and recover so that was a big thing kind of just the sort of the stress level and the amount of questions that you have to have answers for all the time. I think the prep work, the amount of prep work you need to do um, was was a surprise that, you know, just how much prep work. And Brian De Palma did a lot of, uh, you know, really storyboarded the whole film with very crude little pencil sketches. But nevertheless, he worked out every shot. And so I did that. Um, <clears throat> Uh, one thing, though, I learned after the House and Sorority, on House and Sorority, I tried to, I did the storyboard thing, too, but it took me so long to draw even poorly, and I'm a terrible artist. From that point on, I just said, you know what, I'm just going to do a shot list, and so that's what I do. And I just storyboard key visual sequences that involve stunts or action or visual effects. But, yeah, I guess that those were the two biggest ones, yeah. Cool. All right. So... The House on Sorority Row had a very low budget because it was your first film. Yeah. What's the craziest cost-cutting move that you did on set? Like, <laughs> did you use ketchup instead of blood at one point? Like, what... Is there anything that you did on set that was just... I don't know. Something like that? Um, wow. Uh, well, I mean, one of the... We started bouncing checks to the lab because we were, like, over budget... And so about halfway through the movie, we weren't seeing dailies anymore. So we weren't seeing any footage from what we were shooting because the lab refused to send us anything. So, I mean, that wasn't exactly on purpose, but here we were kind of shooting blind in a way, just sort of never seeing what the results looked like. So that was a little difficult. I, I lived actually in the house. Uh, to save money, so my my room where I slept was upstairs in one of the rooms. Um, but that what was good about that is I got to wander through the house all the time and really figure out the shots that I needed. You know, we had a very slimmed down crew. Uh, we didn't use SAG actors, and it turned out one of the one of the adult actors was SAG, and had to change his name so that he was kind of hiding it from SAG. So there are those, those were some of the issues um, that were caused by being low budget. All right. Um, is the room where you slept visible in the film at all at any point? Um, no. Oh, okay. I was sort of next door to Vicky's room. But all right. <laughs> with the waterbed. Yeah, with the waterbed. I think it was the room next door to that. Cool. Uh, could you tell us more about your financial backers? Uh, they used to produce industrial films? Yeah, yeah. Um, the company that put up most of the money was a company called Visual Aids Electronics, VAE. And they did, you know, uh, industrial films, films for um, companies um, around Washington, D.C. area. But it was run by these two guys who were great, and they just always wanted to do a movie. <clears throat> and so a guy that was working for their company knew of a high school friend of mine and who also, I think, was working for the company at that time. And then uh, they asked me if I had anything, and uh, that's what I had, yeah. And so I sent them the script. 
So by industrial films, does that mean like factory safety films or some no, kind it's of anything that a company would need to um, to have a little like either educational thing for for their company? Um, like the Wendy's and rap employment videos. Maybe, yeah, may, right. yeah. It's sort of um, you know their their audience is their employees essentially. Okay. Awesome. I'm just imagining your film being used in some convoluted way as an employee manual. Yeah, like the waterbed manufacturers <laughs> right. of America. What not to do on a waterbed. Or extreme plumbing emergencies. <laughs> yeah, right. What not to flush down a toilet. <laughs> yeah, don't want to flush a crew down the toilet. Oh, God. Okay, so uh, what was your favorite scene in the film? Wow. Um, well, the head in the toilet was pretty fun. Um, I agree. I think kind of the hallucination when Catherine's hallucinating um, was kind of fun. The I, I probably shooting the shooting of Mrs. Slater. We shot that over the course, even though it's a fairly short scene. It had tons of elements and shots in it, and because it took overall probably, you know, maybe eight hours to shoot, the way the location was. Um, the way the sun kind of was on it, we wanted it to sh- we wanted to shoot it only in the shade, and it was only in shade for like three hours of the day. So we ended up shooting it over three days, three separate days, and uh, I just kind of loved when they're dragging her out of the water and they're trying to resuscitate her, and the and the girls are fighting, and Kate is going to call the police, and Vicky stops her. I, I just thought that, and there also one other scene I really like a lot was when um, the girls are collected in the middle of the party, they're in um, the kitchen, and they're all talking about what to do. And for me, my favorite scenes were when the girls were had tension and were kind of you know bickering about what's going on, and I thought that was the most interesting to me. Did you attend any theatrical screenings of the film? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I rented a limousine. And, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it was really exciting for me to have my first film out in theaters. It played on Westwood Boulevard right down the street. Oh, it fantastic. Played in and you were, you were here? Yeah, while I was here. It? I rented a limousine. I had a couple of my friends go along. And we, you know, I wanted to see people lined up to see the movie. We went in. We listened to some of the audiences I went into the bathroom afterwards and heard some of the guys talking about it you know as a fly on the wall uh it was really fun really fun so how do you feel that your film was received you talked on it briefly about being a fly on on the wall but was it you know was it a huge uh you know arousing feeling um that you got from from being in the theater you know the best feeling was when they actually laughed at some of the funny parts that was really the best and so i felt like oh, i should be making comedies um which eventually i, I did the uh yeah, and, and and scaring people you know hearing the entire audience scream in the end when the clown's face like you know lifts up um that's pretty fun to get that kind of feeling um review wise it was sort of a mixed bag we got some really good reviews we got some really fun bad reviews uh <laughs> My favorite fun bad review was um, the one from the Baltimore, a Baltimore paper. It starts off by saying, the newspaper ad for House on Sorority Row proclaims that the film was shot in Baltimore. The problem is the film's playing in Baltimore. <laughs> That's so, good. That, I, I got a kick out of that. Yeah. They should, they should help <laughs> you write comedy. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Okay, so the only horror DVD that I owned prior to meeting Brennan and prior to ever seeing a horror DVD was Sorority Row. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, which, is, which is the remake. Which yeah, which is the remake. Okay. And I, I got it because someone gave it to me for free at a garage sale. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I kind of just wanted to know, like, have you seen your remake and how do you feel about it? And uh, how, do, how, how does it feel knowing that people are still engaged with House and Sorority Row? Uh, it feels great, actually, that people even remember the movie, that I get, you know, calls like from you guys or from the reissue of the CD or, uh, you know, so many things have been in the works about it. And the sequel was kind of a funny story because um, the producer of uh, Model Behavior, that there's a TV movie that I made for 
ABC Family and Disney called Model Behavior, and I worked with this producer named Mike Cars, who went on to do um, Valentine's Day, New Year's Day, that series of big Hollywood movies, and he's done a lot of a lot of movies. Anyhow, he um, on his own financed a writer to write a a modern day sequel of a a remake actually of um, but a kind of a reinvented remake of the house and sorority row and he this is completely on his own um he he went around and finally got the financing from summit to do it the only thing they were missing was when they when summit was securing their own bank financing they needed a clear chain of title which meant that Summit actually owned or, you know, would own the all the rights free and clear. Well, the stumbling block was they were, like, looking for, well, where is the piece of paper that says who actually owned the house on Sorority Row? And they couldn't find it. The They thought they were dealing with a company that owned it because it ended up in a library of of, of various films. And... So about four weeks before they're shooting this $15 million movie, Mike calls me kind of panicked and said, um, do you happen to have that distribution agreement, your original one? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And he, but he was kept calling. He was, you know, very panicked about it and they, cause they had, or else they couldn't make the movie. So I called my attorney from back then. This was now 20 years later, 25 years later called the attorney he was no longer practicing law and he um, referred me to the law firm that took all his boxes I called them they actually had some boxes I ran, ran, went down to downtown LA got the boxes brought them home looked through it and lo and behold not only did I find it but it said the owner was me <laughs> so suddenly I'm now I then became the executive producer in name only really of the film and they flew me out there to kind of meet the cast and so it was really fun in other words but I didn't really have any creative uh, input in the movie okay so I have to ask because I know that you still have the cane I do yes. so the Ooh. cane in the remake it's not the cane right no okay good no it isn't just wonder <laughs> you know because where is the cane it's in my garage okay. <laughs> great all right uh, so now we have questions about life size all right yeah um, for those not in the know Director Mark Rossman of The House on Sorority Row is also director Mark Rossman of 2000's Life Size with Tyra Banks and Lindsay Lohan, as well as The Perfect Man with Hilary Duff and A Cinderella Story also with Hilary Duff and Chad Michael Murray, which are films that we grew up with and came to know and love over the course of our childhoods. And as we were recording our House on Sorority Row podcast and doing our research and we discovered this fact. We knew we had to interview you because this is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to us. And so we're going to ask you some questions and thank you so much for changing our lives. <laughs> sure. Um, so the most obvious question is how does, does one go from making one of the best slasher movies of the 1980s to, as uh, Brennan has quoted in this, uh, this question, a squeaky clean Disney Channel movie? <laughs> well... You know, I think the way it happened uh, was after the House and Sorority Row, I was, I always thought of myself as a, not so much a horror director, but a thriller director, and that was going to be the path I was going to take. <clears throat> but one day I get a call from um, a guy that I went to NYU film school with named Alan Shapiro, and he had made the very first Disney Channel TV movie called Tiger Town in 1984. And they offered him an overall producing deal to bring in other projects. So he called me and said, do you have anything you could pitch to the Disney Channel? And I'm like, what? Me, the horror guy, pitching to the Disney Channel? I don't think so. But I thought about here was an opportunity. I shouldn't pass it up. So I thought and thought and thought. And, uh, you know, what do I have that's, you know, could be more family, whatever. And I came up with this idea called the Blue Yonder Um also sort of based on a feeling that I had when I was a kid, which I never knew my grandfather because he died when he was very young, but I related to him and <clears throat> because he was the one person in our family that had sort of a creative bent to him. And so I wrote a story about a kid 
who relates to his grandfather who had died a long time ago. And uh, he, the grandfather had attempted to cross the Atlantic in 1927 in a biplane before Lindbergh, but ended up disappearing, and they found the wreckage of his plane. And, uh, but he also invented um, a time machine, um, but never got a chance to build it. But his partner, who grows to be the old man um, played by Art Carney, and uh, Art Carney falls sick, and the boy hops in the time machine and goes back and to actually save the life of his grandfather and tell him, don't take that flight. Um, so that's what I made. And, and that I ended up surprising myself and realizing, hey, wait a second, I'm actually really good at this sentimental family, little humor um, kind of story. And it, it was received really well. It was nominated for a Writers Guild Award uh, and for an ACE Award, which was the cable um, back then, the Cable Awards. It was nominated for Best Movie of that year, TV movie, Cable Movie of that year. So it did really well for me. And that kind of launched me into and got me into the Disney world. And I just kind of kept going with that. At the same time, I was still writing some thrillers like um, this one over here called The Invader, which was a Sean Young alien movie and so I still kind of kept my hand in the sci-fi sort of genre but would also do family films and then eventually I just focused really on the comedy romantic comedy and family stuff great so when you started um, working on these family films did people refer to you as the guy who put the the girl's head in the toilet did they no no everybody just remembers the last film you did so you know yeah, after House and Surrey Row, I'm the toilet head guy. After The Blue Yonder, oh, I can only do biplane time travel movies, <laughs> you know. It's, and they forget about, you know. So, But also, I just realized, um, you know, The House and Surrey Row was all about women, right? So it's uh, I've just always somehow gravitated. A lot of my movies center around women. Not my latest one or not The Blue Yonder, but a lot of them that I've written center around women. So there is a connection there. Fantastic. And another connection maybe... Um, in Life Size specifically, the resurrection scene is very macabre. Did you, were you thinking of your horror thriller upbringing at all when you were writing that scene, or at least? You know, there, there, there's a moment in the Blue Yonder where he actually goes back in time that was like a little scary. Um, the the resurrection scene in, in Life Size. Yeah, I think I threw in some of the, you know, horror suspense elements that I that I always liked. Um, so yeah, I think there was an influence there. Okay, so now we're going on to uh, questions about a Cinderella a Cinderella story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I read a rumor on IMDb, and I just wanted to know if this was true. For a Cinderella story, is it true that Rupert Grint from the Harry Potter franchise was was originally cast in the male lead for a Cinderella story? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. They didn't make any sense. He's yeah. such a... He doesn't fit that character at all. Yeah, no, I don't know where that... Really, we did read a bunch of people. We read uh, Jared uh, Galecki, I think it is, from uh, Supernatural. Oh, okay. I can't remember. But we read, you know, all the notable teen guys from that time about... And, you know, we had about, like, six that we then brought in for a final, you know, screen test with Hillary... Mm-hmm. And um, which I believe might even be an extras on on a Cinderella story DVD. I believe they have some other auditions. Um, you know, they probably only have the Chad audition. That's probably. probably what they do. But we did read a bunch of other guys, but not Rupert Grant. Okay. Oh, and did you become attached to that film as a result of your work on Lizzie McGuire, or? You know, the script was something that ended up. A friend of mine got to me, and it was a a spec script that the writer had written, Lee Dunlap, and it never sold. And I read it and really liked it, but felt it needed some work. I gave some notes to Lee. She rewrote it. And then the producer, uh, Cliff Werber, said, well, before we take it out, who could we attach to this? And so I said, well, what about Hillary? She was a hair young at that time. She was like 15, and she's supposed to be like, you know, close to being a senior, and but we sent it to her and and her mother, and uh, they said yes. And then we had a bidding war on our hands of uh, 
of four studios wanted to make it, and we went with Warner Brothers. So, yeah. Wow. So we just briefly talked about your script, or the script that uh, Lee had written. Um, how does your process change as a director when you were directing a script that you didn't write yourself? I know that you gave notes, but was it different in any way? You know, by the time I'm kind of deep into prep, whether I wrote the script originally or didn't, I, I end up being as fluent with it. Um, <clears throat> because even if it's a script I didn't write, I'm so involved with any rewrites, picking every scene apart, every detail, thinking about every shot, that it sort of becomes part of me anyway. So, so yeah, it becomes, you get to a point where it, it just merges and I kind of put go from the writer's hat to the director's hat. All right. And like you said, you worked with Hilary Duff on Lizzie McGuire, yeah. you worked with her on The Cinderella Story, and then The Perfect Man. Working with a young actress for that long over such a sustained period of time, do you feel like you developed more of like a father-daughter relationship with her, or was it strictly a professional relationship? Yeah, it was strictly professional. Um, uh, she really had a team, a lot of support. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like she was missing anything. She had a you know, strong mother involvement. She had um, a guy who was like her kind of an acting coach slash bodyguard um, who was with her all the way through and you know kind of served as a bouncing board for her and um, her sister she had a really good support system and she is very professional so it was more of a professional relationship Continuing with working with the young actresses that you have um, when you worked on House and Sorority Row you know it was a certain there wasn't much of an age difference, but it was an age difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for your other films, they skew a lot younger. Was there a difference in your directing style for that sort of thing? or? Yeah, you know, directing, and I, ju- I just finished directing a movie with, um, you know, f- six, 13, 14-year-olds. Oh. And, um, you know, there's, there's some different styles that you do. Um, you know, you're... Uh, you kind of just want to let them go a little more, or, you know, be free to, you know, go off the script. Um, I wanted to sort of to make sure this was a, a film about four boys who were like best friends. So I wanted to make sure they were kind of bonding. So before shooting started, we all went out and played laser tag together. And, you know, I probably wouldn't do that with, you know, 28 year olds. Um, so, yeah, there's sort of different styles with with every actor you kind of have to pull out some different tools because they're all very different um but you know the younger ones uh, they need some more break time their focus is not as good so you're kind of have to always sort of grab their focus and keep them you know really on task for what you're doing and sometimes they're very focused sometimes they're not and so yeah there's different things i employ great great yeah and a lot of, especially the Hillary Duff films, a lot of the plots focus on very internet web-based ideas. Like in A Cinderella Story, she's IMing with Chad Michael right. Murray a lot. In The Perfect Man, she's doing her blog. Right. And a, the internet is a very static activity, and it was a very new activity in the early 2000s. Was that a challenge for you as a director to find a creative way to visually interpret? Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. I, I remember when we were in prep uh, working on the script on uh, The Perfect Man, you know, somebody literally said, there's this thing called blogs <laughs> that she could be doing. Literally, it was the you know the start. Not that we started, but it was the start of blogs um, at that time. That was around two thousand four, I believe. And so that was very new. Nobody kind of knew what they were, what they looked like. It was kind of a very new thing. But you're right; it was challenging because a lot of it took place with them on the keyboards. And but my favorite scene of of mine in in that movie is when the two of them are talking to each other and they don't know that Hillary is playing the guy. She, Heather thinks she's talking to Chris Noth's character mm-hmm. and Hillary's sort of pretending to be him. And the way I sort of blocked it is they were kind of both against a wall and we actually had them, I believe we actually brought them on the same set and we just dollied across, you know, as though they were in two different locations, but we brought them together and and to try and constantly come up with different ways to shoot 
you know, somebody sitting at a keyboard. But I was happy with that sequence because I thought it, it kind of made this conversation happen in a more lyrical, visual way. Very cool. And to take a step back and go back to uh, Life Size for just a minute, when I'm when uh, I'm on the internet, I've frequently seen just a shot, just a shot from your movie, and it's Tyra Banks at the computer, and she'd been given an instruction, you know, to work, and she looks very confident and is doing it, but then it cuts <laughs> to the screen, and it's just, right. just a uh, garbled yeah. It's just, you know, yeah. ASD, FGA, yeah. you know, those sort of things. And people are using that on the internet as a meme. Are you aware? No, I'm not aware of that at all. To, yeah. what? So, it'll be like, um... <laughs> Someone at it'll, it'll be like oh uh, someone asked me what's on the final, and then it's just that picture where it's like oh, oh, she's uh, poised and then <laughs> she's yeah, no idea going on, hours. and they'll do things like that. So um, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know if you were aware, but it was no, it, it's no, great. great. You should uh, check it out sometime. Yeah, where would I find that? Um, so I found <laughs> it on Tumblr, but you can type it in um, and call it a meme. So it's M E M E. Um, and just Tyra Banks computer meme or life size oh, okay. meme, and it'll it'll come up. Oh, funny! Yeah. Online phenomenon. Yeah. Wow, I should write that down. Okay, that's on Tumblr. Yeah, yes. everything's on Tumblr these All days. Right. Wow. But uh, if you Google search it on the on um, images, it'll, I'm sure it'll come up with the, that sort of Earth thing as well. Life, lifetime or Tyra Banks meme. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna try to pull it up on my phone. Okay. Um, but Brennan, you can ask uh, the next question. All right. <laughs> um, this is just a more general question, but what lessons did you learn on The House on Sorority Row, your first film that you used throughout your entire career? I don't know. Possibly some things about directing actors, because um, I remember I gave a direction to um, Catherine McNeil um, at some point, talking to her about what she the character was expecting was going to happen in the next scene that that was her focus and she found that very helpful so it sort of helped me to think about really just thinking about it from the character's point of view not from the script point of view not from the director's point of view but really from the character's point of view what are they thinking in the moment what are they expecting other than that I don't know I mean I'm sure I picked up a million things but yeah. you know it's uh nothing that like you know obvious i think probably a lot of subtle things about working with the crew um i think in editing i probably realized a lot of things um you know sometimes these great long beautiful shots that you design end up being cut out or cut way down because they take too long to unfold on the screen and we want to see things move at a clip so I think I learned early on that if it's moving, either have some useful dialogue that's happening underneath it or make sure it's moving quickly or, you know, keep the pace up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, probably things like that. Cool. And, okay, if you can remember one, do you have a favorite line that you've written? <laughs> Maybe from life size. Um, I think I'm going to turn you back to plastic and something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So we were both film students, So, and I know you teach film school. Mm -hmm. So if you had your one token piece of advice for young filmmakers who are trying to make it, mm -hmm. what would you say? Well, maybe a couple things. Um, one is that the business is really built on relationships. This isn't a business where you send out resumes and get work. Um, so um, it's all about, you know, the, the cliche is it's who you know, which sounds like, oh, I'm never going to make it because I don't really know anybody, right? Um, but really the truth is you've got to um, build on who you know. And uh, your, your job as a filmmaker is to sort of grow your network of relationships. Um, so I'd say that's number one. And then on the artistic side, um, really it's write what you're passionate about, not necessarily what you know, but which, what you know is great, but it needs to be something that excites you and to write something that you just want it to be commercial, but it's not an area that so excites you. 
um, you're not going to do a good job. So make sure whatever you do as a director, especially as a writer, um, write from passion. You know, um, even if it's you know a horror film, you need to be really psyched and passionate about it. And uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about your upcoming project, Time Toys? Sure, yeah. Um, so I wrote um, this script 19 years ago in 1996 um, about these four boys who find a chest full of toys from the future and have to save the world. And, uh, you know, it, I grew up with Goonies and The Explorers and E.T. and <clears throat> loved those kinds of movies. Um, and then finally wrote one and... But lo and behold, nobody was making those movies any, <laughs> anymore. Um, at first, they were making them if Robin Williams was attached, like Jumanji, if Tom Hanks was, was attached. If it was Tom Hanks and kids, Robin Williams and kids, yes, we'd make it. But this movie was really about the kids, uh, really about it was a, you know empowerment, self-empowerment movie about <clears throat> these four boys who are kind of the losers in the neighborhood, but when they put on these toys, they suddenly become kind of the Fantastic Four in a way. So it languished. And uh, for a moment, a few years after that, around 1999, a company did want to make it for about a million dollars. But I felt then, this was pre-digital, pre-computers, you know, really, almost. Um, sort of early stages of, of, of visual effects on computers, certainly. Um, I thought it wouldn't. There was too many visual effects to make it look good for that kind of cost. So I passed on that. And every now and again, uh, we try and get it made. And um, but finally, this last year, it dawned on me that wait a second, if I scale it down a little bit and do the visual effects the way they're done now, which is you know my film students are doing amazing stuff on their laptop and After Effects, and there's so much you know um, opportunity just in the hands of, you know, uh, um, novice effects people. So I figured, you know what, I could probably do this for um, a low budget. So um, I ended up getting some investors, and we put together the money and uh, just shot the movie, literally finished shooting four weeks ago um, in L.A., and it was great to shoot in L.A. because, you know, the best cast in the world, the best crew, and I didn't have to put anybody up. And, um, and I, you know, we could all live at home and um, shoot in a place that I was familiar. So it really came together. And so it's this fun, G-rated, sci-fi action adventure, good for the whole family. Boys will love it. Not a lot of, you know, boy action, live action movies. You know, it's sort of in the Spy Kids world. You know, definitely on a scale low, uh, below that in terms of the amount of effects um, this has, but um, but a great hook of a story, and um, we're teamed up with uh, a charity called Champions Against Bullying uh, because there's a bullying theme in it. Um, we're very pro-family. We have a Dove, the Dove Foundation, which is a foundation that gives their seal of approval to projects that are either faith-based or family-based gave. Um, gave us a seal of approval based on the script and um, we have Ed Bakley Jr. in it um, uh, Greg Gurman from Ally McBeal Rob Van Dam who's a WWE wrestler um, and uh, a boy named Dalton Sear C-Y-R who's like a young Justin Bieber who <laughs> might have some songs in the movie and then four or five really amazing other kids who are all really talented and have been in all you'll recognize some from uh, Glee and some other um, TV shows and so it's it came together really well that's fantastic and that that just about wraps it up for us but we have one final question for okay. you what's uh, your what's your favorite scary movie Mark Rossman um, Rosemary's Baby that's a good choice well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have any final words that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, good luck, and thank you for your interest in my career and my movies that I thought nobody would ever be interested <laughs> in again. So thanks a lot. And that was our interview with Mark Rossman. He was phenomenal, and it was so great going to his office. His office was, like, um, the best 
attic that you could look through as a kid because it just every everywhere you looked it was something special and you knew that every every little thing that he had in his office had a special story to it it was like stepping directly into my imagination yeah it was great and um on top of it he was such a great guy he was very nice and and um, um very calm and spoke only positive things and and uh treated us as, as guests and was very 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 nice and um we he showed us pictures when he was younger too and he's a cutie pie i know i think apparently um robin Malloy called him jesus at one point oh yes you did yeah and i think it's he he didn't essentially look i don't feel like he looked like jesus but he definitely had that like yeah, that aura yeah you know? yeah and he he's just such an uh you know a nice soft-spoken guy so i think it all worked together Mm -hmm. yeah he's still a cute guy though hasn't lost it great thank you so much mark we really appreciate you coming on the show and being our first ever interview of many more to come i hope yeah i think we set our bar a little high right yeah i know still waiting on mona from i mad man (laughs) the true champion (laughs) okay so Due to the special podcast for this week, there are a couple of announcements. The first announcement is I am going to be going back to school, which means that um, for this episode only, because you did get an additional half hour of content, maybe a little more, um, we're going to be taking one week break just so that we can get I, I can get settled back into school. Also, we're moving into a new apartment and we have to unpack all of my DVDs, which yeah. takes longer than it looks and have to re-alphabetize them and oh my god you guys it's gonna be insane yeah so we're just gonna have a really busy week so we figured um you guys can just chew on this mark rossman interview while we figure our lives out a little bit uh and then we will also be back to regular programming with our sound engineer lucas yes which is great um so what we've been doing in the last couple episodes has just been kind of like we like to call it here, gorilla. Yeah, wandering through the woods, crying and screaming. Yeah, and stealing we stealing ha- microphones from hobos off the street. Yeah, li- well, not hobos, but pretty much from um, Lucas. Yeah, from Lucas. So we wanted to first of all thank Lucas so much for letting us um, borrow a mic stand in one of his mics. We got a compliment on the mic that we used by Mark Rossman himself. He's a so, professional. And I know he can spot him. So thank you, Lucas. Um, also, a major, major thank you to um, Sean and Danny and those at K Beach, which is actually the um, radio station at our school, at my school now. Brennan's graduated wow. at my school. They came in really clutch. We had actually bought a piece of equipment to help with um, a mobile interface and it didn't end up working with our operating system. And I literally m- ran into this guy who works for K Beach, and he, not knowing me very well, was um, able to let me borrow a piece of, of equipment that we needed in order to do this interview with Mark Rossman. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It definitely really helped. And you heard it. You heard it here, folks. So you can contact us uh, in several different ways. First of all, our email, scream101podcast at gmail.com. We also have a plethora of social media it's mostly all under Scream 101 Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter. Twitter uh, is Scream 101 Pod. Yeah. At this point, Google us. Put a message in a bottle. Let it float out onto the horizon. We'll never get, we'll never get back to you that way. Anyway. We might. Um, I'll tie a note to the foot of a dove. Did you know that carrier pigeons like went extinct in like 1914? That, that's a breed of pigeon? Yeah, carrier pigeons were real pigeons. Oh. See, you learn something new every day on our podcast. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. Yeah, so you can contact us that way. Um, we will still be having content come out on a regular basis, so we won't disappear completely on yeah. you. See you in two weeks. Thing. One more what? thing. Um, we're on iTunes. Yeah, that's true. Subscribe. Rate. rate review. Review. We would really appreciate it. We would. We would like to hear from you guys. We want to know what you think. Please let us know. Please step out of the shadows and into the light. Are you real people? Has four out of five doctors made you modern men? Jet set and be a space cadet. These are very relevant questions that need to be answered, and they can only be answered by you through iTunes or our social media. So please respond. Is sweet Melissa what's hiding in your mind. Exactly. All right.
It's so late. We need to stop. So we will be returning in two weeks. And here is the clue for the two weeks from now episode. We will be celebrating slash rubbing in Shannon's return to school with one of the sexiest men alive. I'm not going to tell you which one. That's that's why it's a clue. You have to guess. But it's a back to school slasher. Yes. Yes, it is. And I'm so excited. And Brennan, who will be singing us out? Oh, I think you know, Shannon. I do know. I'm excited about it. And we will be playing you out with Waiting for the Change by four out of five doctors from the House on Sorority Row soundtrack. I love your questions. Are like I've never been asked any of these questions. Good, that was, that was cool. our goal. I, I, I'm pretty sure I read every single interview with you. That's really? Oh conducted. my god. He's very thorough. Wow. These books actually, just funny little note. So they were written by Robin Malloy. Oh, Bowles you have, Bay. you have her books. She wrote, she's the actress of The Head in the Toilet. In yeah. Row. Yeah, and so I reconnected with her, I don't know, maybe about a year ago on Facebook, and we Fantastic. talked for the first time in like 25 years, and she sent me the books that she wrote. I've been meaning to pick up a copy of uh, Waltz of the Asparagus People because she has a chapter about House and Sorority Row in that book. Yes, and that's the one I read. Yeah, oh, it's like, oh, it's hysterical because the way she describes me <laughs> is hysterical when she talks about the audition pro. I'm mean, the casting process. Yeah, um, she calls me Jesus because I like. Um, there's a, here, this picture. Jesus, but I had like the beard and a little longer scruffy hair and she says so I'm nervously waiting you know to be called in and then Jesus walks in Uh and uh, it's hysterical this is great All the scripts I was looking Forrest Gump back there. Yeah, I didn't write that. Right.
Bye. Bye.